Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your Friday episode. Today I'm launching this quite early, as I have a wedding to go to today to celebrate a union and consequently will be out all this evening, which is the exact time I use to produce an episode. So, my lovelies, I'm releasing the final part of Mr. Elvisham from 30 Strange Tales by H.G. Wells, and I've also remastered a crime classic titled The Boom Brothers as a special thank you just for you awesome people. I really enjoyed this OTR, and I've been applying a new sequence of remastering techniques thanks to you Patreons. As I'm cutting and editing this episode down to the wire to release it, I won't be doing my usual outro today, but rest assured, back to normal Monday. Before I go, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters who send me their dollary dues to improve the show. My never-endingly awesome, jaw-dropping Ode Night Tea Titan, Maya. Thank you so much. Your constant support always blows me away. And the Boom Brothers is my special thank you to you as well. My always brilliant and epically awesome White Tea Warlord, Lesosaurus Rex. Thank you so much for your support, buddy. And my El Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. All of you make my day every day, and I'm so thankful. You're all very special to me. I'll catch you lovelies Monday. Have an amazing Friday and weekend, and as always, till next we meet. I felt then a passionate desire to see myself, to realize at once in its full horror the ghastly change that had come upon me. I tottered to the mantel and felt along it for matches. As I did so, a barking cough sprang up in my throat and I clutched the thick flannel nightdress I found about me. There were no matches there, and I suddenly realized that my extremities were cold, sniffing and coughing, whimpering a little perhaps. I fumbled back to bed. It is surely a dream. I whimpered to myself as I clambered back. Surely a dream. It was a senile repetition. I pulled the bedclothes over my shoulders, over my ears. I thrust my withered hand under the pillow and determined to compose myself to sleep. Of course, it was a dream. In the morning, the dream would be over and I should wake up strong and vigorous again to my youth and studies. I shut my eyes, breathed regularly, and finding myself wakeful, began to count slowly through the powers of three. But the thing I desired would not come. I could not get to sleep, and the persuasion of the inexorable reality of the change that had happened to me grew steadily. Presently, I found myself with my eyes wide open, the powers of three forgotten, and my skinny fingers upon my shriveled gums. I was indeed, suddenly and abruptly, an old man. I had, in some unaccountable manner, fallen through my life, and come to old age. In some way I had been cheated of all the best of my life, of love, of struggle, of strength, and hope. I groveled into the pillow and tried to persuade myself that such hallucination was 
possible. Imperceptibly, steadily, the dawn grew clearer. At last, despairing of further sleep, I sat up in bed and looked about me. A chill twilight rendered the whole chamber visible. It was spacious and well furnished, better furnished than any room I have ever slept in before. A candle and matches became dimly visible upon a little pedestal in a recess. I threw back the bedclothes and shivering with the rawness of the early morning, albeit it was summertime, I got out and lit the candle. Then trembling horribly, so that the extinguisher rattled on its pike, I tossed it to the glass and saw Elvisham's horrid face. And it was none the less horrible, because I had already dimly feared as much. He had already seemed physically weak and pitiful to me, but now, dressed only in a coarse flannel nightdress, that fell apart and showed the stringy neck, seen now as my own body. I cannot describe its desolate decrepitude. The hollow cheeks, the straggling tail of dirty grey hair, the roomy bleared eyes, the quivering, shriveled lips, the lower displaying a gleam of the pink interior lining, and those horrible, dark gums showing. You, at your mind and body, on natural years, cannot imagine what this fiendish imprisonment meant to me. To be young and full of the desire and energy of youth, and to be caught, and presently to be crushed in this tottering ruin of a body. But I wander from the course of my story. For some time I must have been stunned at this change that had come upon me. It was daylight when I did so far gather myself together as to think, in some inexplicable way, I had been changed. Though how, short of magic, the thing had been done, I could not say. And as I thought, the diabolical ingenuity of Elvisham came home to me. It seemed plain to me that as I found myself in his, so he must be in possession of my body, of my strength, that is, and my future. But how to prove it? Then, as I thought, the thing became so incredible, even to me, that my mind reeled, and I had to pinch myself, to feel my toothless gums, to see myself in the glass, and to touch the things about me before I could steady myself to face the facts again. Was all life hallucination? Was I indeed Elvisham? And he me? Had I been dreaming of Eden's thoughts? I recalled the queer doubleness of my memories overnight. But now my mind was clear. Not the ghost of any memories, but those proper to Eden could I raise. This way lies insanity. I cried in my piping voice. I staggered to my feet, dragged my feeble, heavy limbs to the washhand stand, and plunged my grey head into a basin of cold water. Then, toweling myself, I tried again. It was no good. I felt beyond all question that I was indeed Eden, not Elvisham, but Eden in Elvisham's body. Had I been a man of any other age, I might have given myself up to fate as one enchanted, but in these sceptical days, miracles do not pass current. Here was some trick of psychology. What a drug and steady stare could do, a drug and a steady stare, or some similar treatment, could surely undo. Men have lost their memories before, but to exchange memories as one does umbrellas. I laughed. Alas, not a healthy laugh, but a wheezing, 
senile titter. I could have fancied old Elvisham laughing at my plight, and a gust of petulant anger unusual to me swept across my feelings. I began dressing eagerly in the clothes I found lying about on the floor, and only realized when I was dressed that it was an evening suit I had assumed. I opened the wardrobe and found some more ordinary clothes, a pair of pallid trousers, and an old-fashioned dressing gown. I put a venerable smoking cap on my venerable head, and coughing a little from my exertion, tottered out onto the landing. It was then perhaps a quarter to six, and the blinds were closely drawn, and the house quite, quite silent. The landing was a spacious one. A broad, richly carpeted staircase went down into the darkness of the hall below, and before me a door ajar showed me a writing desk, a revolving bookcase, the back of a study chair, and a fine array of bound books, shelf upon shelf. My study. I mumbled and walked across the landing. Then, at the sound of my voice, a thought struck me, and I went back to the bedroom and put in the set of false teeth. They slipped in with the ease of old habit. That's better, said I, gnashing them, and so returned to the study. The drawers of the writing desk were locked, and its revolving top was also locked. I could see no indication of the keys, and there were none so in the pockets of my trousers. I shuffled back at once to the bedroom, and went through the dress suit, and afterwards all the pockets of all the garments I could find. I was very eager, and one night have imagined that burglars had been at work to see my room when I had done. Not only were there no keys to be found, but not a coin, nor a scrap of paper, save only the receipted bills of the overnight dinner. A curious weariness asserted itself. I sat down and stared at the garments flung here and there, their pockets turned inside out. My first frenzy had already been flicked out. Every moment I was beginning to realize the immense intelligence of the plans of my enemy, to see more and more clearly the hopelessness of my position. With an effort, I rose and hurried, hobbling into the study again. On the staircase was a housemaid pulling up the blinds. She stared, I think, at the expression on my face. I shut the door on the study behind me, and, seizing a poker, began an attack upon the desk. That is how they found me. The cover of the desk was split, the lock smashed, the letters torn out of the pigeonholes and tossed about the room. In my senile rage, I had flung about the pens and other such light stationery, and overturned the ink. Moreover, a large vase upon the mantel had gotten broken. I do not know how. I could find no checkbook, no money, no indication of the slightest use for the recovery of my body. I was battered madly at the drawers. When the butler, backed by two women servants, intruded upon me. That simply is the story of my change. No one will believe my frantic assertions. I am treated as one demented, and even at this moment, I am under restraint. But I am sane, absolutely insane, and to prove it, I have sat down to write this story minutely as the things happened to me. I appeal to the reader. Whether there is any trace of insanity in the Salo method of the story he has been reading, I am a young man locked away in an old man's body. But the clear fact is incredible to everyone. Naturally, I appear demented to those who will not believe this. Naturally, 
I do not know the names of my secretaries, of the doctors who come to see me, of my servants and neighbors of this town, wherever it is, where I find myself. Naturally, I lose myself in my own house and suffer inconveniences of every sort. Naturally, I ask the oddest questions. Naturally, I weep and cry out and have paroxysms of despair. I have no money and no checkbook. The bank will not recognize my signature, for I suppose that, allowing for the feeble muscles I now have, my handwriting is still Eden's. These people about me will not let me go to the bank personally. It seems, indeed, that there is no bank in this town, and that I have an account in some part of London. It seems that Elfsham kept the name of his solicitor secret from all his household, and I can ascertain nothing. Elfsham was, of course, a profound student of mental science, and all my declarations of the facts of the case merely confirm the theory that my insanity is the outcome of overmuch brooding upon psychology. Dreams of the personal identity, indeed. Two days ago, I was a healthy youngster, with all life before me. Now, I am a furious old man, unkept and desperate and miserable, prowling about a great, luxurious, strange house, watched, feared, and avoided as a lunatic by everyone about me. And in London, in Elfsham, beginning life again, in a vigorous body, and with all the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of three score and ten. He has stolen my life. What has happened, I do not clearly know. In the study are volumes of manuscript notes referring chiefly to the psychology of memory, and parts of what may be either calculations or ciphers, in symbols absolutely strange to me. In some passages, there are some indications that he was occupied by the philosophy of maths. I take it he has transferred the whole of his memories, the accumulation that makes up his personality from this old weathered brain of his to mine. And similarly, that has transferred mine to his discarding treatment. Practically, that is, he has changed bodies, but how such a change may be possible is without the range of my philosophy. I have been a materialist for all my thinking life, but here, suddenly, is a clear case of man's detachability from the matter. One desperate experiment I am about to try. I sit writing here before putting the matter to issue. This morning, with the help of a table knife that I had secreted at breakfast, I succeeded in breaking open a fairly obvious secret drawer in this wrecked writing desk. I discovered nothing save a little green file containing a white powder. Round the neck of the file was a label, and thereon was written this one word. Release. This would be, most probably, poison. I can understand Elfsham placing poison in my way, and I should be sure that it was his intention so to get rid of the only living witness against him, were it not for this careful concealment. The man has practically solved the problem of immortality. Save for the spite of chance, he will live in my body until he's aged. And then again, throwing that aside, he will assume some other victim's youth and strength. When one remembers his heartlessness, it is terrible to think of the ever-growing experience that how long has he been leaping from body to body? But I tire of writing. The powder appears to be soluble in water and the taste is not unpleasant. 
There, the narrative found upon Mr. Elvesham's desk ends. His dead body lay between the desk and the chair. The letter had been pushed back, probably by his last convulsion. The story was written in pencil and in a crazy hand, quite unlike his usual minute characters. There remains only two curious facts to record. Indisputably, there was some connection between Eden and Elvesham since the whole of Elvesham's property was bequeathed to the young man, but he never inherited. When Elvesham committed suicide, Eden was, strangely enough, already dead. 24 hours before, he had been knocked down by a cab and killed instantly. At the crowded crossing at the intersection of Gower Street and Euston Road, so that the only human being who could have thrown light upon this fantastic narrative is beyond the reach of questions, without further comment. I leave this extraordinary matter to the reader's individual judgment. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That was Jacko. Jacko, the three-quarter Irish setter. A good dog, usually a well-behaved dog, friend to the children of Manchester Village, Vermont, an inquisitive dog. Whatever disturbs him isn't buried very deep. Listen to him digging. Smart dog. He's found what he was after. He's tugging at it. Gets it. Good dog. What have you got there, Jacko? A bone. Looks like a leg bone, doesn't it? A human leg bone. Tonight, my report to you on the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. A study in nip and tuck. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. They were fighting battles on Lake Champlain in 1812, but across the state, forests away and mountains apart, the village of Manchester sent peaceful fans of chimney smoke into the February air. It was ebb of winter and edge of spring. It was snow flurry and thaw and chill sunlight. Here, the Battenkill River flowed swift and dark down from the green mountains and crusted icily near its banks and past the village, then flowed swift and dark away. And where the snow had melted, the soil glistened and was rich and black. Farmhouses gleamed white. And where the furrow began, the shallow furrow that deepened and roughened and slowly rose up the mountainside and became the gorge that cut across the face of Mount Equinox. Where it gently began was the backyard of the house of Russell and Sally Colvin. And inside it... He's sleeping. Asleep? Why? Why asleep? What did you put him to sleep for? Please. 
There's moonlight on the snow, and there's moonlight on the mountain, and I promised my son he'd see. Why do you do that? Why do you fill his mind with lies and fancies? There's little men on the mountain tonight, and I told my son he'd see them. Lewis! Don't wake him, Russell. Don't wake him. Stop hanging on my arm, woman. Russell! Stop hanging on my arm! Crazy! Crazy man! (laughs) Wake! Wake, son! I'll bundle you, and it's up the mountain we'll go tonight with you riding my shoulders. And little men we'll find. Them at their bowls and singing and dancing. And we'll join them. Come with me, son. Up the path the moonlight makes on the mountain snow. Up the path the moonlight makes. As any mother knows, this is an upsetting experience. And as Sally Colvin knew, this was not the first experience of its kind. Sometimes her husband would hoist her son on his back and walk away from the house and not come back for days at a time. And when they did, they would smile at each other, secret smiles, and say nothing of where they had been. And there were secret words between them that Sally could not understand, and signs and small patterns of dance, and then great bursts of laughter. And this time... The time when Russell took his son up the path the moonlight made, and they returned two days later. Where have you been? In heaven's name, where have you been? Sleeping. Now you'll sleep the day away and the night, the sun, and dream of the fancies we've seen in the little men. Sleep. Sleep. Tell me, tell me what... Oh, sister, come in. What can I do for you in the morning? Hold me. Hold me. Oh, sister. Sister to me, what troubles you? <laughs> Him again? Your husband? Yes, oh, yes. And what? What he's doing to my son. Soon, soon. What? My son will become as mad as my husband. They speak of creatures in the mist in the gorge. And starbursts and moans. Brother. Brother Stephen Bourne. What do you want me to do? I don't know. He's a stronger man than I. There's not much I can do. But you and our brother Jesse Bourne, together you could do it. Don't speak to me of Jesse, him that I hate. But me, what of me? Speak no more of it. Save me. Save me, Stephen Bourne. That's what I ask of you. Sister. Save me. How? Very well, you know how. You and Jesse. You know it and you have said it. Come with me to our brother's forge and make peace and save me, your sister.
brother stands here before you and wishes to friend with you because... Jesse! Out of my way, there's work to be done. I'm no blacksmith, Jesse, and I've not got the sinews of you, but listen to your sister and what her trouble is or I'll try you. Will you now? Will you? Me, you can split your head to your heart in a stroke. Try me, will you? Then do it! Stop it! Stop it! Listen. Listen to me. I'm being killed, and my death is the madness around me. What are you saying? Of a husband. Let her say it. And what he does to my child. I've heard strangenesses in the village of your husband, sister. And when I've heard them, I've smiled to myself in remembering. This is the man you needed to marry, sister. Would die without, sister. And now he's a daft and a loon. Now he's hero, hero out. Say on, sister. He takes Lewis with him on walkings. For days. And they return. And there are secrets and madnesses. And loneliness for you. I care nothing of it. I care only for my son. Jesse. Jesse. Take his hand, Jesse Bourne, and be brothers again. For there is a bond now. The need to help me. Yes. And now listen to me. There where the ravine starts. By the field where it is rocky. I will send my husband there. A plotter, our sister. I will send my husband there. Tomorrow in the morning. Will you be there? Will the both of you be there? We'll be there. Now, hear to me, son, the way I do it. Come a goblin, come a teeny, come an elfin, come a greeny, come about, come about, come about all, and you shall... Russell. I'll finish it for you later, son. Russell. Russ. There you are. With your son Newton agape at you again. What do you want? It's a new morning and the new season of spring's coming in with it. And so? And so there's work. And you need not tell me of it. There's no work I do not do on this farm. I need no telling of it. In the upper field and where the rocks are easy to pull from the ground now that the thaw has softened it. I know of it. You need not remind me. Tonight the night frost may harden the ground again. I know it. I know it. Then go. I'll be back, son. Think hard of the verse I taught you. The way he went, did Russell Colvin, on this new morning toward the upper field. He'd not gone twenty yards when he stopped. Gold. Sparkle of sun on Vermont granite. Small pool of sparkle. Gold. And he picked it up and put it in his pocket. Then on again. The long way around, through the grove of naked spruce. To give throat to the new season. Oh! And on and on, to the brook now. And stop beside it. And kneel beside it and listen. Yes. Yes. Then through a thicket and into the upper field and the surprise in store for him. Oh, Russell. Hello, Jesse Boyne. Stephen. Oh, brother-in-law. What do you hear? To help you, Russell. To do what? 
To help you clear the rocks now that the ground is soft with thaw. And how do you know I'm here to do that? How indeed. I need not your help. I'm hearing you do, brother-in-law. I'm hearing that way, too. We're in hearing you don't do well by our sister, Russell. That's what we hear most of. And who's saying that? Our sister, your wife's saying it, Russell. More wife than sister, so it's not of your business. So it's off the land with you, the two of you. Oh, now, indeed. What you have to in that branch for, Stephen? I'm aiming to brain you with it. You are aiming the same, Jesse? Going to help. Then let's get to it. We'll see. Let's get to it indeed. Stephen Bourne used the branch as a club, and with excellent teamwork, he and his brother Jesse won the fight. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Island. Tomorrow evening, CBS Radio invites you again to mystery and intrigue, enhanced by the presence of Miss Marlena Dietrich. This Thursday, Miss Dietrich's adventure leads her to a little town in southern France, where stories of buried treasure have been bruited loudly enough to gather rapscallions of reprehensible inclination from all corners of Europe. Time for Love is heard tomorrow evening on most of these same stations. Now, once again, Thomas Highland in the second act of Crime Classics, and his report to you on the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. A study in nip and tuck. It was a good spring. April of 1812 was the gentlest in the memory of those who lived on the soft shoulder of Mount Equinox in Vermont. There were rumors of marchings and torch and war outside, but no one paid much attention. They were more important things, church, crops, and children, living to be done in the green mountains, the crackling air to be breathed, roam away through the soft fall of twilight and press a cheek against the warmth of an animal. Wondrous sunsets and tomorrow a wondrous dawn. Good place and good time, this valley. And one morning, as a matter of fact, on the morning after the Bourne brothers had done an errand for their sister. Come in. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Wyman. And to you, Mrs. Colvin. A sweet morning. It is. And what may I do for you? It's Wednesday. And so it is. So I've come again so your mister can drive me to the village again. He to shop for you and me for mine. He's not here. Oh, no. In the field, then? Not in the field. Oh, of course he is not, for I saw your son Lewis at play just outside the door, and he would be in the fields with his daddy dear, were his daddy dear in the field. You'll be late to market, Mrs. Wyman. Where's the dear man your husband, Mrs. Colvin? Gone. Where gone? 
to the mountain. Oh? I think. And when will he return? I don't know. Oh, such a dear man. And the dear fancies he sees and tells you of. Ah, oh, what a fortunate woman you are, Mrs. Colvin. I've cleaning to do, Mrs. Wyman. And busy you are, I know, Mrs. Colvin, preparing supper for you and your beautiful child. But it's a month since the village has seen your husband last. And for the last week it's been raining. And if the dear Mr. Colvin is in the mountains, as you say. What then, Mrs. Colvin? What then? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe what? Maybe he has gone to war. It's a year now, Mrs. Colvin. Have you heard from the dear man? Ah, it's a cruel war. I came to wish the all of you. You, Mrs. Colvin, and you, Stephen Bourne, and Jesse Bourne, a happy new year to you. May 1817 be a blessing to all of you. And to you, Mrs. Wyman. Happy new year, Mrs. Wyman. Happy new year. And a pity Mr. Colvin's not here. I suppose he'll never return now, will he? Now stop your crying, Sally. Boy's a boy. Only fourteen. My son, Louis. And run off to join the militia. What's that? Most what all boys doing now. Maybe I've failed. What are you saying, sister? Maybe the whole thing was done wrong. What wrong? Seven years since he's had no father. Maybe his father should have been close to him. And... Loneliness again, sister. Or my son. Hey, what's the outcry? See what, Stephen? Oh, Stephen Boone. What is it, Sheriff Skinner? See there. A fire to Dr. Glazier's barn. Fetch a bucket in quick. Yes. Jesse, there's a fire to Dr. Glazier's barn. You surely know the barn, Jesse. Fire! And in 1819, fires were not very easy to control. It was a matter of having enough men and enough buckets to reach from the fire to the stream. 
And Dr. Glazier's barn was not notably close to the stream. Nor were there enough men, nor buckets. So... The fire had its own way. It burned the barn to the ground. And later, when the ashes had cooled and while Sheriff Skinner was consoling Dr. Glazier on his loss, the sheriff's dog... Ah, what you digging there, Jacko? Find something, Jacko? Bring it here, Jacko. Ah, let's see what you got there. A bone. Funny looking bone, big bone. What kind of bone would you say this was, Dr. Glazier? Leg bone. Human. Don't say. Not positive. Could be, though. Let's take a look, Jacko, where you found this bone. Ah. Hand me that stick of wood, will you, Doctor, so I can make this hole a little bigger. Where I used to store my potatoes to keep them from freezing. Uh Uh-huh. A button now. And look here, a knife. Funny-looking knife. Let me see it. I know the knife. Truth now, whose? Russell Colvin's knife. Russell Colvin now. He's not been around. Six years, seven. It's his knife, all right. And that's a button off his coat, too. And this is a human leg bone, you're saying, Doctor? I'm not saying it's not a human leg bone. Let's get along, Jacko. Come on, come on, boy. A few words about Sheriff Silas Skinner. A good man had been sheriff of the county for nearly 20 years, and there wasn't a man who could say he hadn't got a fair shake from old Silas, or woman either. An honest man with no bias nor prejudice. A direct man. Where's your husband, Sally? Why, I don't know. A man of few words. You kill him? No. Who killed him, Sally? My brother Jesse killed him, Sheriff. A cautious man. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. But I'm arresting you till I find out which. A man of his word. Jesse? Yes, Sheriff? You kill your brother-in-law, Russell Colvin? No, Sheriff, I did not. Who did? My brother Stephen did. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. But I'm arresting you till I find out which. Sheriff Silas Skinner sees it through. Stephen? Yes, Sheriff? I locked up your sister and I locked up your brother. And I'm putting you behind bars, too. On what charge, Sheriff? A murdering. Murdering who? Russell Colvin. I didn't murder him, Sheriff. Jesse said you did. Jesse's lying. And on Jesse for long, he don't lie. He's starting to now when he says I murdered. You didn't murder him by yourself. That's what you're saying, isn't it, Stephen? I'm saying that right enough. Your sister have anything to do with the murdering? Not that I know of. I'm going to tell you something, boy. What? I'm going to tell you something, son. What? You say to me what happened, it'll be easier for you. What do you mean? A little scale, that's all. No hanging. There's a handshake that goes with it? There is indeed. Here's my hand, Sheriff. And mine. Now, how was it done, son? How was it done, boy? Russell Colvin was on his rocky upper field. And that's where you done it, son? And my brother got on one side of him and 
I got to the other. And that's how you done it, boy? I hit him with a tree branch. And Jesse with his fist? That's right. That's right. And that's the way you killed him? Yes, sir. Then you took him to another farm? Doc Glaciers. And to that barn? Doc Glaciers. And buried him? Yes, sir. We'll write this out, son, and you'll sign it, won't you, boy? Just a little jail? Boy, son. Just a little jail? I shook your hand. Then I'll sign it. Good boy. No! No, no! Stop taking on so, Stephen Bourne. Your brother Jesse's not acting up the way you are. They found us guilty. Well, you confess. They're going to hang us. You said just a little jail. You said no hanging. I did what I could. You said no hanging. Now you listen to me. You killed your brother-in-law and you confessed to it and you had a trial by jury and they found you guilty. And the judge said hanging. Now that's the laws applied to you and your brother. So don't carry on. Let's do a thing, Sheriff. What thing? Put an advertisement in the newspapers. An advertisement? For what? For Russell Colvin. Put a description in. And say, life depends on him turning up. You crazy? You killed him. You confessed you killed him. Who knows of Russell Colvin? Whether killed, he stayed killed. He and his moonlight little people. Do it. Now, don't order me, son. Please. Huh? Please do it. Well, all right, son. I have a copy here of the Rutland Herald, a newspaper of the time which was circulated throughout this area of Vermont. I would like to read to you a classified ad which appeared in the issue of November 26, 1819. Printers of newspapers throughout the United States are desired to publish that Stephen Bourne of Manchester in Vermont is sentenced to be executed for the murder of Russell Colvin, who has been absent about seven years. Any person who can give information of said Colvin may save the life of the innocent by making, by making immediate, immediate communication. Colvin is about five feet five inches, light complexion, light colored hair, blue eyes, and about 40 years of age. Why, that sounds like our hand, Russell, except it doesn't say about a boy being with him. Hmm. Well, I'll see if it is. Russell! Russell, now! What was you doing, Russell? Talking to my boy, Lewis. Your son, ain't he? My son. They're looking for a man named Russell in Manchester. Oh? It's going to be a hanging unless they find a man named Russell. Russell Colvin. You once said you was from Manchester. I am. They looking for you? I'm Russell Colvin. My duty to see you get back to Manchester, Russell. This mm, is. And so, two days before the scheduled hanging, Russell Colvin again appeared in Manchester. And the Bourne boys were not hanged. They were set free. What about the bone? Well, it was never proven to be a human bone. And the knife and button, Russell's, how had they gotten there? 
Russell always smiled when he was asked that. And what did his wife say to all this? You can come home if you want. I don't want you no more. I hear our son's with you. Yes, ma'am, he is. How did he find you a hundred miles away? Oh, the little people told him where I was. Them that lives on the path the moonlight makes. They told him. According to the report I have right here. 